Good evening, brothers and sisters. Tonight's passage, you'll find it in the book of Judges, chapter 11. That is the book of Judges, chapter 11. Let me open this up in a word of prayer before we dive into this chapter. Father in heaven, there was ever a time that we needed illumination to see your message and your word, this would be it. Father, this is a tough chapter. I ask that at this moment you would open our hearts and by the power of the Spirit, allow us the ability to understand what you mean to say, the warnings you mean to give, and the commands you want us to follow. Father, I pray this moment that uh, I would be clear in expositing your word, that you would bless the, the, the word, the preaching of the word, unto the ears here that hear. Lord, we thank you for all you that you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. The book of the Judges covers one of the most tragic periods, if not the most tragic period, in Israel's history. A period in which a never-ending cycle seems to be going on. Israel strays from God. They adopt the pagan and sinful practices of their neighbors. God gives them up to be ruled by those neighbors. They eventually cry out to God for salvation, and God grants them salvation. He grants them a judge. And these men were called judges because they enforced God's standard of justice in the land. They led Israel through war, usually, and freed them from their oppressors. They restrained sin in the land. And this time in this cycle in the book of Judges in chapter 11, things are a bit different. Yes, Israel once again has strayed away from the Lord, doing evil things in his sight. But things are different. The Bible quotes Israel as being severely distressed because the Ammonites, a brutal enemy from the north, have already been, who have already been oppressing parts of Israel, they're on the move. They're looking to take over the rest of Israel, and they're especially treacherous. And the people of God do what they've done before. They cry out to God for salvation, for deliverance, for a judge. And God grants them a judge. He grants them Jephthah. Our outline for tonight in this sermonette, point number one will be the zeal of Jephthah, point number two, the folly of Jephthah, and point number three, the zeal of the Christian. Point number one, the zeal of Jephthah, point number two, the folly of Jephthah, and number three, the zeal of the Christian. The way Jephthah is introduced is, uh, from the start, remarkable, right? He's a mighty warrior, but born the son of a prostitute. And when he grows up, his very own brothers drive him out of the house. See, they're born into wedlock. They're born to his father and his father's wife. And they don't want him to have any part of the inheritance. So those men that should love him the most, his brothers, drive him out. And they force him to run away to a land called Tob, a lawless part of Israel, especially a lawless part of Israel. And no doubt Jephthah has a very hard and dangerous life. And it's because of his circumstances he becomes a mighty warrior and gains a following. Now we can only imagine the pain Jephthah must have felt to be driven away by those who all love him, living a hard life, living by the edge of the sword, in a land where he has no inheritance, nothing to look forward to. Years pass, and all of a sudden, to Jephthah's great surprise, Boom, the elders from back home in Gilead appear. And these elders, some of which 
were his old brothers. They have moved up the chain. And they come to him, and they actually want him to be their leader. They tell him, come, be our leader. There's just one catch. You have to go to war with a treacherous enemy and pretty much face certain death in the process. That's all. With that, you get Israel. Now, Jephthah could have outright refused them and walked away from it all. God had previously said some of the most terrifying words God could say in Judges 10. God told Israel, I will save you no more. God was fed up with Israel's cycle of disobedience. But God is who God is. A God compassionate, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, overflowing with love and faithfulness. God must, uh, must honor his covenant promises. God cannot change. And so they go to Jephthah, and with all of this in the backdrop, Jephthah does something remarkable. Right? Jephthah agrees to take on this mission. He agrees to take on this trial. He could have let anger consume his heart and responded quite bitterly to these men who drove him out of his home. He don't do that. Right? He could have been furious about the hard life they forced on him. He could have even relished and enjoyed the prospect of those old brothers being destroyed by the Canaanites. That's what he could have done. But he doesn't do any of it. Jephthah responds in probably the most loving and God-glorifying way possible. He accepts the mission. Why? Because God's people are in their time of need. And now he has a chance to go back home to serve those who did him wrong to serve God and deliver his people. That's an offer he couldn't refuse. Yes, Jephthah's brothers hated him, but he responded with love. So what's the first thing he's going to do? Is it to call the military into action? Not a bad idea. Is it to find every able-bodied man possible, arm him, and train him to fight? Again, not a bad idea. No. He goes to the people, and in, and in chapter 11, verse 11, it reads, And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Now to speak all your words before the Lord, it was a public act of covenant renewal. He was leading the people back into their worship of God. That's his first priority. Why? Because Jephthah knows that without God, he stands no chance of winning. Not this fight. Jephthah even immediately opens diplomacy with these Ammonites. He's striving for peace with his enemies. He's not trying to buy them off with tribute. He doesn't promise to submit to them like other future leaders of Israel will do. Right? No, he honors God's commands. Right? He strives for peace. He's a mighty warrior. But he's not a man in love with violence. That's not Jephthah. Still, his diplomacy fails. And it ends with Jephthah concluding in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Jephthah and the people of Ammon. Jephthah is a man of faith. He leaves it all up to the Lord. He follows the Lord, shows love. And all this brings us to our first point. If there's an element of Jephthah's character that I want us to see here, 
Something that I want us to walk away with, it's his zeal. Jephthah is a zealous man of faith. He, after all, is listed in Hebrews 11. In the great hall of fame of the heroes of the faith, there's Jephthah. And it shouldn't shock us. I mean, what kind of man goes to those who throw him out and responds the way he does? Who responds the way he does to a foreign enemy that is, wants to destroy you? But zeal is probably the one Christian character trait, one Christian character trait that comes with an asterisk, a very important asterisk. You see, zeal must be informed. It must be shaped by the knowledge of God given to us in his word. To be zealous without knowledge is exceptionally dangerous and perhaps even deadly. My favorite illustration of what zeal is is from the great old Anglican theologian J.C. Ryle. He said that zeal is like fire. Fire is one of the best servants, but also like fire, if it is not well directed, it is the worst of masters. Ryle points out all the good things that come from fire. If fire is well directed and controlled, right? Fire can provide warmth, it can help you prepare food. Fire has many industrial uses, both back then and today. You can light a bonfire just for your entertainment, right? <laughs> fire serves us well, right? But if fire gets out of control, if fire gets started in a place where it shouldn't have been, maybe because a person has been negligent or just didn't know what they were doing, well, the fire can have some devastating effects on everything around it. Fire can cause irreparable damage. It can burn down and destroy, and it can most certainly kill. Zeal should be a mark of our character, and it would serve us well if it is. But if zeal takes over us and is uninformed, it can have devastating effects. So our definition of zeal is going to be, again from Ryan, zeal is a burning desire to please God in everything you do. A burning desire to serve him in his kingdom in all ways possible. The zealous believer could never be happy doing the minimum for God. No, the zealous believer strives to do the maximum all the time. But zeal without knowledge is again dangerous. And Jephthah was most certainly zealous, but was he knowledgeable? Well, to some extent, he knew the fundamentals. He knew the covenant that God had with Israel. He knew aspects of God's character. But our main text of this evening is in verse 29. Verse 29 is our main section. I'll read. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mitzvah of Gilead. And from Mitzvah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you give the Ammonites into my hand, then what comes out, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, if these words shock you, they should. God's chosen deliverer, his hero, has just sworn to give God a human sacrifice. Now, I'll mention that this is the historic position of the church throughout the ages. Recently, there have been some that have challenged this view, and I'm going to give them just a minute. <laughs> Just a minute. Um, there are some that are going to point out 
that the Hebrew word in verse 31 that reads and could actually be translated as or. So that the verse would read, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. And thus they make the case that if a human had come out, uh, he was just going to commit that human to the tabernacle, shall be the Lord's. But if an animal came out, then he would do the burnt offering. Um, the problem with this is that Jephthah clearly says, whatever comes from the doors of my house. Now, I know there are some popular artistic depictions that have animals like living in the home back then in the ancient Near East. It didn't happen. Right? Animals lived in the stable, they lived in barns, they did not live inside the house. Especially back in the ancient Near East, there was also another practice that when warriors came home in pagan nations, and unfortunately this is the time where Israel is acting more pagan than godly, um, there would be slave girls that would come out of the house. They would come out with tambourines and they'd be playing a song for the winning warrior, for the winning general. So Jephthah most certainly expects a human to come out of his home. Mm. Furthermore, the idea that she, the, the idea that the human would merely be committed uh, to the tabernacle also doesn't make sense when we look at the way the tabernacle was operating. Um, Later in the story, his daughter will lament her virginity, her purity, right? Um, no one at the temple was required to be a virgin, all right? Even the priests were married. Everyone was married. There were ladies there who served. They were all married. Um, there is no provision, in, no verse in Leviticus that, that prohibits, that, that requires, I should say, a virgin to serve in the tabernacle. So if the only thing she was lamenting was her purity, it makes no sense because she could have gotten married when she went to the tabernacle. So I bring all this up real quick just to say that, brothers and sisters, we ought not run away from the parts of the Bible that highlight the brutal, the grotesque, the macabre, the horrific effects and consequences of sin, and the depravity of humankind. These parts of scripture may rattle us to the core, they might even give us nightmares. But these words are here for our instruction. They're here to highlight important points. In verse 29, one thing that trips a lot of people up, and I'll just address it now, is that the word says that the spirit of the Lord had come upon Jephthah. We should read this as confirmation that God had indeed chosen Jephthah for this trial. He had chosen him to work a great salvation for Israel. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord comes out to men, whether it was King Saul or, or, or Jephthah in this case, when they're about to face battles or when they're about to perform miracles. Okay? So the Spirit of the Lord simply means that Jephthah is now chosen by God and will be empowered by God to work salvation for Israel, which he will do. It doesn't mean that he's not going to sin. It's in a different context in the New Covenant, but we believers have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. And do we not sin and at times even in serious sins? Well, yeah, yeah absolutely. This, this does not mean that his vow isn't sinful. Jephthah's, Jephthah's zeal here is stained by his lack of knowledge, and it's gonna become a snare for him. He's highly emotional, no doubt, this is a great trial from him. And the only way to read this is that he probably was trying to offer up to God what in a pagan's eyes would have been the greatest sacrifice. 
a child sacrifice. You have to remember that Jephthah had been living in a lawless land. Jephthah had been neglected by his father, and we have no mention of his mother. He probably wasn't raised in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Again, sure, he knew a few things. He knew the basics that Israel would always sing about and pray about. But he didn't know the whole counsel of God available to him at the time. Now, I'm not trying to make excuses for what Jephthah did. But scripture is very clear about how essential sitting under faithful teaching of God's truth is for our sanctification. We are sanctified by his word. His word is true. And I hope that none of us have puffed up to think that if we don't sit under faithful teaching, we wouldn't make mistakes like Jephthah did. We only, we're only prevented from those mistakes because we learn what God's word instructs us and teaches us. So Jephthah goes to war. And he deals the Ammonites a crushing blow. The word says that Israel subdued the Ammonites. Jephthah did not just obtain a victory. That would be selling this short. This was an act of God. A military miracle. This was the spirit of the Lord leading God's chosen warrior into a battle and working salvation. And it should have been a time for great celebrations. For parades. For victory songs. Should have been a time to rejoice. Well, when he comes back, there's only one thing to do. One thing left to do. It's to make sacrifice. Something is going to come out of his home. Right? Starting with verse 34. We'll read. Then Jephthah came home at Mitzvah. And behold, and, and mind the sake, we are now in point number two. The folly of Jephthah. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, the ancient Eri's practice. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter, and as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. I have opened my mouth to the Lord. I cannot take back my vow. Jephthah faces the worst possible outcome of his vow. It would have been bad enough any human comes out. Any human sacrifice would have been hard. Right? But he faces his only child. His daughter comes out to meet him. And rather than realizing and knowing that God could never be pleased by human sacrifice, he holds that he has to fulfill this vow. This is an especially sad chapter for numerous reasons. Not only for his own father, but where were the elders? Where was everybody else? Nobody here pointed out to him that in Leviticus, for us, chapter 18, 22 to be exact, God forbade human sacrifice. He said it profaned his name to sacrifice a child to him. And even more so, in Leviticus, again, chapter 5, God gives instructions on how to repent for making foolish vows, for foolish vows that we made. Obviously, if we commit to doing something and then discover what we wanted to do, however well-intentioned it was, we discovered it is sin, don't do it. Right? That's a simple formula. He's devastated. He's ripped his clothes. He's crying. He's a mess. But it's going to do him nor his daughter any good. What would have restored his joy 
And in this case, literally save a soul, physically, would have been the knowledge and counsel of God. If only he or someone else could have intervened in this. Now, I want to go over her response here. Her response in verse 36. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months, that I may go down, uh, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. Her submission to her father and to this vow is beyond admirable. She goes without any complaining, without any grumbling, to die for the sins of other people. In this case, her father and everyone else who did not intervene. She thinks she's doing a good thing, and despite her submission being admirable, we have to point out that she too was acting foolishly. Now, I'll defend it to this extent. You know, a child's instructor, instructor in the Word of God should be her parents. And if her father didn't know the Word, well, there was no way he was teaching his daughter the Word. Her mother isn't, isn't mentioned. We have no uh, word of, of, of Jephthah's wife or anything. So it's not surprising that although she does submit to this, she is still um, committing a folly, unfortunately. Now, I don't have enough time to go over her sacrifice even, uh, to go over her response and her, her act in more in depth. Um, she truly deserves a sermon all on her own. I mean, this is the clearest foreshadow of the sacrifice of Christ. Right? With I, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac survived. In this case, she does not survive. Right? And she again did nothing wrong. She is not dying an atoning death. That is impossible. The blood, of, the blood of bulls and goats cannot save, nor can the blood of children. But she is dying as a result of sinful behavior from others and goes without complaining. Does she really deserve a message on her own? At the end of this two-month reprieve, Jephthah does to her according to his vow. He kills his daughter and offers her up as a burnt offering, a supposed atonement for sin. And what should have been a great time of celebration turns into a time of mourning and lament. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous and can even be deadly. And in this case, it was. So what becomes of Jephthah after this? Well, the next chapter, he'll go to war again. Uh, the tribe of Israel, Ephraim, deals treacherously with him. And he wins. Again, a great victory. God is still with him. He ultimately judges Israel for six more years, but dies childless. But I think the important question for us here, and the encouragement we can get from this, we have to ask ourselves, was he doomed? Is he in hell? For what he did. I mean, it was a severe sin. God especially hated child sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, he's mentioned in the Hall of Fame of the Heroes of Faith. This man is saved. 
The author of Hebrews clearly points out that Jephthah did, that what Jephthah accomplished in his battles was a result of his faith. Jephthah trusted God and believed in his promise that one day there would be a man that would crush the head of the serpent who would be the actual man that the Passover lamb was pointing to. A messianic king that would save God's people from wrath. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ through a mirror, dimly lit, not clear. But he put his faith in God's promise, in God's first gospel. For those of us who have put our, our trust in, God, in Christ's atoning work on the cross, we, like Jephthah, have nothing to fear. There is no sin that can separate us from the love of God. And for those who have not put their trust in the Lord and his work and continue to walk away from him, there should be great fear. God deals with his enemies very harshly. The Ammonites found out the hard way. And while there are many others, the fact that, there are many other reasons, but the fact that a place like hell exists proves that God is not playing games. Had Jephthah not been a saved man, he would be experienced from right now the hottest chamber in hell. But because he was a man of faith, he's experiencing eternal life. The thought of meeting the Lord without the blood of Jesus covering him ought to be straight up terrifying. Now, we're going to get to our point here, our point of the brief. The zeal of the Christian. The zeal of the Christian. We've got a story here of a man that was very zealous. He saved Israel. He enforced justice. He was mighty in war. He accomplished the will of God. But he made a big mistake because he didn't have knowledge. But when we talk about the zeal that we should be uh, imitating, the zeal that we should have, well, I want to carefully point out, carefully, that no man ever walked the earth with greater zeal for God than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ walked into the temple. He saw that it had been turned into a den of thieves and robbers. And in an act of fury, he fastened the whip, scattered all the animals, overturned all the tables of the money changers, and threw them out. And when the disciples saw this, the words of Psalm 69 came to their mind. Zeal for your house shall consume me. They saw Jesus as a zealous man of the Lord. It was something that woke up their conscience when they saw that. Now, not for two seconds am I suggesting that in our zeal, you should find a false teaching church run in there and tear it apart. Okay? That's not the point. Okay? God, Christ did that. That was his righteous judgment there on the Pharisees who were cheating the people. But Christ has called us to respond to false teaching and false gospels by boldly proclaiming the true gospel. And in the process, seasoning our speech with salt. We ought to be zealous to do what the Lord has laid out for us, which is arguably much easier, absolutely much easier than what he did. It's critically important to remember when it comes to zeal that our zeal must always be informed by the whole counsel of God, not just a chapter and a verse, because those can be taken out of context. No, we should have clear examples 
from a few spots in God's word and test our zeal and our great ideas with it. Zeal is the gift of, God, of grace, least spoken of in the whole church, I believe, by my declaration. We hear a lot about humility, a lot about kindness, a lot about gentleness, joy in others, but not too much about zeal. And I think the reason is because zeal is dangerous. Because zeal can potentially be something that causes harm. But I want to entreat us to the words of Paul in Romans 12, 11. Paul writes, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I think many of us avoid zeal and even suppress it, and even suppress it in other believers, unfortunately, because it's powerful and intimidating. But if it's molded by God's counsel, then zeal is the greatest treasure we can possess. Think of the long line of zealous men and women in the church. Think about the reformers who stood up to the most powerful organization in the world, the Roman Catholic Church, and risked their lives in the process. Think of the missionaries who left the comforts of the Western world to go to faraway lands that they knew nothing about except that they were pretty dangerous. And yet they made the trip. Think of John Calvin. John Calvin preached 700 recorded sermons in the last year of his life while he was sick and died. And Calvin, if you listen to his sermons, are usually quite long. More than two a day. That's zeal. If you think of the Christians that the Romans threw to the lions, or the English Puritans who were burned at the stake, that was zeal. That was zeal. But I don't want us to think that only the brothers and sisters who have made a name for themselves in church history are zealous. Old servants in the church who have put in three, four, five decades of faithful sermon. We had missionaries we just heard from who for like 46 years of evangelizing at Purdue University. Those that have stayed in the race for a long time, faithful to God, and have, have, have pursued their calling with all their might, that's zeal. The zealous servant doubles the master's money, Matthew 25. And that's a calling for all of us. I want to get personal here for just a moment. I want you to go back in time to the moment that you first realized, whether it was a day or over a period of time, but when you first realized you were saved, that God had transformed you and given you a new heart, and that he had called you to be his child. I bet you were really zealous. Normally when believers look back at that day, they see a difference between then and now. I remember when I first got saved. I was literally on fire. I went straight to my partner that day at work and said, we're doomed. <laughs> we're not living for the Lord. He said, what are you talking about? You're a Christian. I said, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. You, you said, I, I, no, you don't understand. I, things have happened. I understand things I didn't before. Right? I immediately went into my job and had to find some sort of Protestant ministry because I knew we had it. We had chaplains. I went in. I realized that the I was I was very immature at the time, but I was right about this. The teaching was very uh, disloyal to the Word of God. I got in. 
I became active, made me president, so I drove out the heretics, because I was Ellis. <laughs> I went to them and said, look, this is the way this organization is going to be from now on. We're not cultural anymore. We're not cultural Christians, because that's what they used to say. I said, no, we're gospel-centered Christians now. No, we're not. All right, we're going to have this argument. And before you know it now, we do have a faithful, gospel-centered ministry at my work. I sometimes look back with a lot of pain and sadness at my zeal when I was first converted. Because seven years from then, which has been seven years, I'm way more knowledgeable of God's word now. I've read it for years. I know it better. I've not arrived. Right? Neither has Paul arrived, so I've not arrived. But, but I know it a lot better now than I did back then. But I don't have the zeal that I had back then. I notice that now times can go by and I don't share the gospel actively. But when I first was saved, I told everybody. Zeal comes and goes in seasons. We must be zealous for zeal. Should be praying for zeal and cultivating zeal. Asking the Lord to, for opportunities to serve Him. Putting our hearts and minds to everything we do. I've asked the Lord to return my zeal. And in seasons he has. And then it dies out again. Right? And it's not his fault. It's not his fault. <laughs> right? I have only one more thing to say. Your application for tonight. Just one. Be zealous for the Lord. Be zealous for the Lord. But be careful. And cultivate a zeal according to knowledge. Search the scriptures as if you were looking for silver and gold. Because it's better than treasure. Search for it that way diligently. If we could be zealous in every season of our lives, just think about what it would mean for the kingdom and for the church. We suppress zeal on ourselves. That's the biggest problem. We get excited and we want to tone it down. Right? We get a little worried about that. Right? Get a little frightened. You ought not be frightened. Christ saved the people unto himself so that they could be zealous for good works. Titus 2.14. We ought to be marked in a people of zeal. God spits out and hates lukewarmness. We ought not be. Father in heaven, Lord, come before you now, Lord, to ask that you would ignite a fire in all our hearts, mm -hmm. that we would be zealous people for your cause. Lord, that you would guard us so that we would make sure to always seek out counsel, godly brothers and sisters, that we would do our best to be diligent in our reading and understanding and our study of the word, of your word. Father, I pray that you would gift us with zeal Give us the courage to be zealous, Lord. That you wouldn't let things like the fear of man inhibit our ability to serve the kingdom. Lord, I ask that we would look back on this story, which has a brutal end, Lord, but that we would admire what the old saints were able to do with their zeal, and that we would be careful to not commit the mistakes they made in in serving you and in carrying that zeal out. Lord, we love you and we ask for your strength and your power to do it. 
We know that's the only way to do it correctly. We ask that you guard our hearts from legalism, that we not be like the Pharisees, who were zealous without knowledge, Lord. They converted a man over to their cause. They made hell twice as hot as it should have been for them. We ask, Lord, that you would give us the power to bring the truth to people in a loving way. Pray all this in your Son's name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.